You are now listening to Macrodose. Hello and welcome to another electrifying episode of Macrodose. Fear not, James hasn't undergone a sudden vocal transformation, nor has he taken a crash course in northern dialects to tap into his northern roots. This week, you're all stuck with my dulcet and dual tones. For those of you who don't know me, I am Niall Glynn, an economist for my sins, a researcher, and the founder of the Working Class Economist Group. This week, we're plunging into the treacherous and complex waters of monopoly capitalism. We'll be untangling the web of concentrated power that touches every corner of our lives. From the breakfast table to the digital domain that you're using to tune in today. So, grab a cuppa, relax, and let's decode this madness together. Alright, let's start off with a quick quiz question. What do baby milk formula, an EpiPen, and the Google search engine all have in common? And no, this isn't the start of a terrible joke. In a nutshell, they're all produced in highly concentrated industries. In the United States... Nearly 100% of baby milk formula consumed comes from just three companies, Abbott, Gerber and Reckitt. Abbott alone accounts for 40%. Just one pharmaceutical company, you heard that correctly, just one, holds approximately 90% of the EpiPen market, allowing it to more than quadruple its prices over the course of the last decade. And Google, the tech giant, has a share of around 84% of the global search engine market. Whether it's the milk formula on your shelf, the EpiPen in your emergency kit, or even Google, the omnipresent genie awaiting your command, a few giants are pulling the strings of the global economy. And we're only just scratching the surface. But this is not a recent thing. In fact, companies with monopoly power have been around for time. For example, some of you may have heard of the legendary Dutch East India Company, otherwise known as the VOC, that once ruled the trading seas. The VOC operated from present-day Indonesia and had a monopoly over many spices and textiles in the 17th century. It is estimated that if the VOC were around today, it would be worth $7.9 trillion. More than Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet and 17 other of the top-valued corporations of today combined. But let's fast-forward to our modern era a world where giant corporate economic titans cast long, glooming shadows across society. Their footprints are evident everywhere. In the United States, the lion's share of the economy is controlled by just the top 1% of companies. Since the 1930s, the share of the US economy dominated by the top 1% of companies, calculated by the value of their total assets, has increased from 70% to 97%. The share of the top 0.1% of companies is even more stark, rising from 47% to 88%. It's like a game of chess where a few pieces have all the power. The European Union, the UK and others, well, they're also following suit. With the problem becoming even more of an issue across the world, let's focus in and shine a light on three industries casting particularly long shadows. Food, pharmaceuticals and technology. Ever heard the saying, too many cooks spoil the broth? Well, in global gastronomy, it seems a select few chefs are dictating the recipe and stirring the pot. 
the global food industry is dominated by a handful of multi-billion dollar firms. As of 2019, the seed market was run by the big six of Monsanto, Syngenta, Bayer, BASF, DuPont and Dow Chemical, which controlled 63% of the world's commercial seeds and 75% of global agrochemicals. Mega mergers have meant even more concentration. The Bayer and Monsanto $63 billion deal turned the big six into the big five. The mega-merger of Sinochem and ChemChina in 2021 led to the creation of the third largest seed firm and the largest chemical conglomerate in the world. But this concentration isn't just about size. It's reshaping our planet and having real consequences for the food we eat. Genetic diversity is also rapidly dwindling. A staggering 75% of plant genetic diversity vanished into thin air since the 90s as farmers worldwide have been forced into cultivating genetically similar high-yielding crops. Imagine a world where almost three quarters of the food you eat comes from just a mere dozen plants and five animal species. Sounds pretty risky, doesn't it? But that's how it is today. One crop disease as seen across Europe in the 1840s in potatoes or an extreme weather event could wipe out food for millions of people. Heck, you don't have to look too far to see the impact on crops today of extreme weather events, as James has showed in previous episodes. This also has an impact on inflation. Because of highly concentrated food industry, large corporations do not have to fear being outcompeted by others coming in with cheaper prices. This means they do not pass on cost savings to their consumers and can get away with daylight robbery. In 2022 alone, food and energy giants paid $257 billion onto their shareholders, which is roughly 84% of windfall profits being sucked up, all while you struggle to put food on your table and keep the lights on. But it doesn't stop there. One area of the global food system that deserves more attention than it gets are the global food commodity trading houses. These somewhat mysterious and hidden entities have so much sway in how our food flows across the world, they themselves warrant an episode. The largest of these, collectively known as ABCD, control 75% to 90% of all international grain trade. Commodity trading houses understand the benefits of being one of the few dominant firms. From 1990 to 2019, these trading houses have increasingly been acquiring those around them. The ABCD group accounted for 63% of acquisitions among the top 10 commodity trading houses. Cargill alone accounts for 30%. Of these acquisitions, 42% of these happened from 2010 to 2019. It is no coincidence that commodity markets, which dictate the incomes of hundreds of millions of people across the global south, have become more volatile in this period. Let's pivot to the world of the pharmaceutical titans holding health hostage. In the kingdom of pharmaceuticals, a few kings reign supreme, wielding the scepter of pricing. From exploiting global crises like Pfizer and Moderna during the COVID-19 pandemic, to age-old medicines like insulin becoming a luxury, it is clear that health is more of a business than a right. Their power is so vast even governments across the world are dancing to their tunes. Again, being a bit of an economic history nerd, 
let's take a trip into history. It's 1958, and the US government has released a report on the antibiotics industry. They found that a handful of companies have cornered the market to keep the price of tetracycline high. The production of post-penicillin antibiotics was highly concentrated, with Pfizer and American Cyanamid controlling 50% of total antibiotics production. Since the 1980s, global biotechnology and pharmaceutical mergers and acquisitions have steadily increased in number and value. Between 1995 and 2015, 60 pharmaceutical companies merged into just 10 in the United States. What about today? Well, for example, just three pharmaceutical giants, Sanofi, Novo Nordisk and Eli Lilly, own the US patents to manufacture insulin. Due to their position and power in the early 2010s, these health barons were able to raise prices by a whopping 168%, 169% and 325%. Or let's take the example of the anti-inflammatory drug Humira, which is used to treat Crohn's disease and rheumatoid arthritis. Like many drugs that we all depend on, this drug is owned by a company that did not invent it. AbbVie purchased the rights to the medicine and massively inflated the price in the following years, despite no real changes to the drug's effectiveness. For a year's supply of Humira, in the United States, it costs around $77,000. Even in Britain, with our ever-loved NHS, it is cheaper due to their ability to negotiate him, yet it's still around 11000 for a yearly course, making it one of the highest expenditures in the NHS for a single medicine. This has knock-on effects on the NHS's ability to give out the medicine, leaving them no other choice but to ration it while AbbVie makes ridiculous profits that they pass on to their shareholders. Your pain is their profits. Last but not least, let us take a brief foray into big tech. As we've already noted, in big food and big pharma, mergers and acquisitions are central to how big tech operates. For example, Alphabet, the parent company of Google, has taken over 200 other companies since 2001. Again, in this space, profits are the main driver. Apple, on paper, is the most profitable corporation in the world. In 2021 alone, they generated $95 billion, which is around $10 million for every hour of 2021. Amazon made $1.3 billion in income every day in the same year with their profits skyrocketing to around 50%. Where over the course of the pandemic, Jeff Bezos's net worth increased by 67% alone. And that's not because Jeff has been working 67% harder. Has he L. The increase in his net wealth has come off the backs of thousands of Amazon workers on low wages working in very dangerous conditions. We also need to acknowledge that big tech firms like Amazon and Google provide platforms that give them enormous power to shape the information we all receive and in return, the goods that we purchase. Big tech corporations are now involved in a myriad of data projects, for example, in public health services and public education, with users locked into dependency not only on a single product, but the services of the corporation which makes that product for as long as they want it to work. These monopolies aren't just affecting our choices and wallets. 
they're reshaping our society. Wage inequalities, fragile global systems, barriers to solving mammoth challenges like the climate crisis are all byproducts of this unchecked power. As we have seen, they directly harm the way we produce and consume the basics of life, from destabilizing small farming communities through big agriculture to enabling excruciating price hikes for essential medicines. But here's the silver lining. We do have the tools to challenge the status quo, which fall roughly into two broad strands. First up, we have competition policy, which aims to make markets more competitive, regulate them, and in turn break up the big monopolies. On the other side is ownership, which seeks to fundamentally shift control of economic resources, which for me, that should be in the hands of workers and their communities. Antitrust people will turn their nose up at this point, but competition policy is not the best route. What's the logic behind disassembling entities like Google or food commodity trading houses for the sake of competitiveness if we don't address the foundational structures that gave rise to them? Without rectifying these structural concerns, it is plausible that these monopolistic entities will re-emerge, potentially even more exploitative than they were before. It might not involve the same stakeholders, but the likelihood is that affluent individuals will eventually consolidate these resources. It's akin to slapping a band-aid on the gushing pipe. Sure, it may stem the flow temporarily, but the looming threat of a deluge remains. What's crucial is restructuring the governance of workplaces, redefining community ownership, and entrusting them with the decision-making power regarding their lives. What we're talking about here is economic democracy. Economic democracy is needed so communities and workers can take control of their own livelihoods. People need more influence over the resources available to them and the decision-making processes that affect their lives, determining the what, where, how and why of extraction, production, distribution and consumption in, most importantly, a democratic manner. We must also reverse the decades-long privatisation trend of more and more of the public realm worldwide. Instead, we must remake the case for collective ownership of the essentials of our society, from resources and land, to housing, education, our institutions, finance, economic planning, public utilities, infrastructure, governance bodies, and visions of the future. An ownership that is climate-focused non-extractive, and internationalist at its core, and where resources, wealth and power aren't concentrated in the hands of a few. But it's not all doom and gloom. And this isn't just an academic debate. Across the world, millions are fighting back. From the people's vaccine movement, who challenged monopolies over the COVID-19 medicines, and have spawned a wave of alternative research, development and manufacturing. To La Via Campesina, and the fight for food sovereignty led by millions of small-scale food producers across the globe. We can also look to the campaign Make Amazon Pay, which is fighting to force Amazon to pay fairer wages and to finally pay their taxes. The world doesn't have to be this way, so I'll leave you with this one line that's been stuck in my mind for months. The economy was designed, so we can redesign it. In an increasingly global society, we do not have to let all the good stuff go to a minority. 
Thank you for listening to today's show. Macrodose is a Planet B production. If you enjoyed the show and you'd recommend it to friends, please consider leaving us a rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. You can find all our episodes, including our bonus interview content, on our Patreon at patreon.com slash macrodose. 